This message was presented through a partnership between GYC and GYC Europe at the 2012 conference in Linz, Austria. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the calling to be overcomers. And we pray right now that as we, as we look into finding victory, how we can find victory, how you want to give us the victory through Jesus, that your presence would be here. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now, obviously I don't know all of you, and you don't know me, uh, most of you anyway. But what I can say is this. Um, I'm going to be sharing this a little bit differently with you than I might with just any individual uh, seminar that we would do because I'm figuring most all of you are Christian. So I'm going to be sharing a little bit more in detail some things than we would with the general public. But in general, these are some, some of the things that we share. And some of the principles here you can actually learn to implement with friends or people who you may meet and uh, may also help them. So this is a seminar that it may be for you personally or it may be as a help to somebody else who may be struggling with um, some kind of negative habit. Now the reality is this. It's not just people out in the world, you know, who struggle with different addictions. You may say, well, I don't struggle with alcohol. I don't struggle with tobacco. Maybe you do. But the reality is this. We all have at some point in our lives some kind of negative habits. Some habits that are, uh, we know that we don't want to continue in these things, but we struggle to overcome them them. So we want to find, how do I find the victory? How do I find the victory? Uh, I do not, I'm going to share with you a text in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6 and to me this is an absolutely powerful verse. Number one, it shows you that the church that was in the days of Paul. Paul wrote the book of Corinth. He's writing, or the book of Corinthians, and he's writing to the church in Corinth. And we're going to look, and we're going to notice that the people of Corinth struggled with the very same temptations that people struggle with in Linz, Austria, in France, in Germany, in the United States. The same struggles that people struggle with today, they were struggling with back 2,000 years ago. So we're looking in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and verse 9, and this is a very heavy verse, two verses here. Verse 9 says, do you not know, or don't you know, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he says, don't be deceived, neither fornicators. I'm going to read through them quickly, and then we'll go back through and try to figure out what these things are. He says, neither fornicators, nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now you may not, these are not common words. These are not, I mean, we don't use, I mean, young people don't walk around the United States using words like this or in Great Britain typically. And so we're going to try to break down. Paul has a list of sins and he says, if people are committing these sins, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. What does that mean? What's it mean you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God? You're not going to go to heaven, right? Yeah, simply. It means you're not going to go to heaven. Now, when we, let's look a little bit more clearly within the text here. And what does it say? He says, he says, don't you know, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, do not be deceived. 
What does it mean to not be deceived? When I say don't be deceived, what am I telling you? Don't be, yeah, fooled. Don't be tricked, right? Don't let anybody lead you away from the truth. And then he lists all these sins. He says, neither fornicators. Now, the word fornicator in the original Greek is a word, uh, the Greek word is pornos. Pornos, which we get the word, obviously, pornography. Now, obviously, they didn't have pornography. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have magazines at that time. But it was fornication. It was sexual relations before marriage. If someone is having sexual relationships before marriage, according to the text, it says they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we know that we can repent and God can forgive us. But if we are choosing to live a sexually active lifestyle before we are married... Paul says simply, don't let anybody trick you. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's very clear. And then he goes on to say, nor idolaters. What's an idolater? Someone who worships idols, right? Now, obviously, there's more than just worshiping an idol. You can also uh, care so much about a, a car, an automobile. You could care so much about a, maybe a job that you put the job above God. Meaning the job may be in conflict with what you know to be right, but you so want to make the money that it becomes like an idol to you. So that's another way of being an idolater. It goes on to say, nor adulterers. Now an adulterer, obviously there's different forms of adultery, but one of the most obvious ways is having sexual relations with someone that you are not married to meaning you may already be married or the other person is married and you're having sexual relations. But Jesus also told us that if a man, do you remember? If he, yes, if he looks upon a woman with lust in his heart, he has what? He's committed adultery, right? And then it goes on to say, nor effeminate is the word the old King James uses. Um, and then it says, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. The newer translations just say it clearly. They say, nor homosexuals. It says homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, verse 10 says, nor thieves. So if we're stealing, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Nor covetous. Meaning if you're constantly wanting, desiring things that others have or own, wishing you had that man's wife, wishing you had that girl's, I don't know, dress, or whatever you might be constantly wanting things of others, it says you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. And then it says, nor drunkards. What's a drunkard? It's an old English word for alcoholic, right? So these kind of people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then it goes on to say, it uses a word that we never use today in English, at least in the States, revilers. Now a reviler, according to the definition, is someone who who uses harsh, uh, how do we say it? Something like uh, criticizing people in an abusive manner. So constantly getting angry at your parents or constantly getting angry at your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your husband or your wife or whatever. Constantly speaking angry negative things. It says those people who do that will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then it goes on to say, nor extortioners. It's another word we don't typically use, but it is a word you could still use today. Uh, An extortioner is someone who takes money uh, typically by force or threats. So someone who is, who is obtaining money by force or threats. And it says these people should not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, when we look at these things, you say, this is not very hopeful. Why did I come to a seminar where you just listed off a bunch of terrible things and said, if you do these things, you're not going to go to heaven. Now, it's kind of scary. 
Now, it would seem to be scary because you may look through that list and you say, this is not good. I see some of my character described on on the pages of Scripture, and it says if I live this lifestyle, I am not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, let me ask you a question, and you, you can answer with a yes or a no. Do you think, after reading this list of things, that do you believe that people today are struggling with the same sins they were struggling with 2,000 years ago, yes or no? So it's clear. It's not as if, oh, back in the days of Paul, it was very easy. One of the words there, the word effeminate, speaking in, in the days of Greece and Rome, it was customary, it was, it was quite usual to find men who would have little boys that they would sexually use for their pleasures. That was, it was quite common in Greece and Rome. So it's not as if we live in just such drastically different times than people lived 2,000 years ago. Yes, the times are different. We have iPads and iPods and computers, but the reality is the same temptations that they struggled with 2,000 years ago are the same temptations that people struggle with in modern Europe, in the United States, across the planet. Humanity at the core of us, we are the same. We are the same throughout time. Yes, things, customs may change. Different cultures may be a little different. But temptations are the same. And so Paul lists all of these things off. And he says, if you're living this lifestyle, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then what does he say? Notice with me. You say, this is scary because I see my own sins in this page. But Paul says some of the most hopeful words in verse 11. He says, and such were some of you but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So catch this. Paul looks at the church in Corinth, the church that he's writing to, and he says, listen, he lists off all these different sins like young people having sexual relations before marriage. He, he lists off uh, people who are married having immoral sexual relations. Then he talks about other people. He says people who are stealing, idolaters, homosexuals, and he lists off all these things and he says, if, if you're committing these sins, you will not inherit heaven. But then he goes on to say, to the church, he says to the people in the church, so imagine he's speaking to you. He's speaking to you personally. Now, obviously, this is 2,000 years ago. But he writes to the church and he says, this is the way some of you used to be. You, you, some of you in this crowd, he said, you used to be a homosexual. You used to be an adulterer. You used to be having sexual relations before marriage. He says, you used to steal from your work. You used to do all of these different things. But he says, listen, you have been changed. Now, let me ask you a question. According to this text, can an adulterer change, yes or no? Can a homosexual change according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, yes or no? A homosexual can change. The reality is this. God can give victory to every single person regardless of their temptation and regardless of their sins. I want you to think about this for a moment. My father is a heavy drinker. I became a heavy drinker. I would drink myself to sleep at night. Uh, my dad was the first one to give me a cigar. I got addicted to tobacco very, very rapidly. I have a personality that whatever I do, I, I just I go at it all the way. That's what I do. If, I, if I'm interested in something, I think about it all the time. 
If I'm interested in a subject, I talk about it all the time. And my poor wife has to deal with that because I'm, I have a one-track mind. Now, the, the point is this. So if my, if my father was a heavy drinker, if he is an alcoholic, could it be possible that in my genes is a gene for alcoholism? Yes or no? It could be possible, right? It could be possible that in my genes, that's in my flesh, that I am an alcoholic. Now, if it's in my genes, then I can't help it, right? There's nothing I can do about it. Because, it's, because I was born that way, I can't be changed. Is that what the Bible teaches? No. The reality is this. It doesn't matter what's inside of your flesh. The Bible doesn't call it our genes. It calls it our flesh. It says in, in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, For I know that in me, in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. So inside of me, there's nothing good by nature. By nature, we want things, we want to be lustful. We want to be angry, we want to be selfish. This is, it's a part of who we are at the very core of our being. So just because something, I was born with something, doesn't mean that God can't give me the victory. To the contrary, God has all power and he can give us absolute victory. He can give us victory. Now, I'm going to give you a little illustration of um, something that won't make sense until I explain it. But I, the last state in the United States that I lived in was, is called South Dakota. Any, anybody ever heard of Mount Rushmore, that big mountain with the faces of the presidents on it? You know, We live right by that. That's, that's where we lived, right by there. In South Dakota, almost nobody lives it's a giant state with nobody in it. Nobody lives there. It's out in the middle of nowhere. The area we lived was very beautiful. But if you ever drive across South Dakota, um, way out in the middle of nowhere, you, you don't see any houses. I mean, you can drive and drive and drive uh, 75 miles an hour, I don't know, 130, 40, whatever kilometers per hour, I don't know what it is. But you can be driving and driving and driving and not see a house. And, but when you first get to South Dakota, you'll see a sign, a billboard. You, you know what a billboard is, right? You know, the big sign with a, you know, advertisement on it. And on that sign, it will say, wall drug, 408 miles. And you're driving into the, the state of South Dakota and you say, wall drug? What is wall drug? You don't know. Nobody knows. And so then you get a little further and, and you see the next sign and it says, wall drug, five cent ice water. And you're like, what is this place? And then you drive a little further and you see another sign and it says, Waldrug, life-size dinosaurs. You're like, what is this place? Then you drive a little further and there's another billboard and it says, Waldrug, as advertised on London buses. And you're thinking, London buses? I mean, who goes to Waldrug anyway? Who goes to South Dakota? Nobody goes to South Dakota. Why, why are they advertising in London? And then you go a little further and it says, Waldrug, as advertised in Tanzania, and you're thinking, Tanzania? Who on earth is coming to South Dakota from Tanzania or wherever it is? And so you continue to drive, and you see all these billboards, 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 and there's nothing else to see. There's no buildings, there's no homes, it's just desolate wasteland. And so you're driving through South Dakota, and the only thing you're thinking about is something that you don't even know what it is. You're thinking about this place called Wall Drug. And so you continue to drive, and you're driving, and, and you're thinking about it, and you get a little further, and it says, Waldrug, Buffalo Burgers. And I'm like, I'm a vegetarian, you know? I mean, I don't care about Buffalo Burgers. But I keep driving, and, and all you can think about is Waldrug, 
but you don't know what it is. So you continue to go. And so as you're driving, you're driving, you're driving, you're driving. And what happens is this. As you continue to drive, you see all of these uh, advertisements. And literally, they're just, they're just one after the other. And as you continue on, what you end up discovering is you get close to the exit. And you discover there's actually a city called Wall. And so then there's advertisements. Wall drug, uh, ice cream cones, wall drug, uh, five cent coffee, all these different things. And so as you continue to drive, you finally, you do what everybody does the first time they get to South Dakota. They go to wall drug. And what you find out, just like I did, is as you drive off the exit ramp, you discover that it's a city called Wall, and they have a drugstore. And they've been advertising it for 400 miles. And you, you get there and you're like, what? You're kidding me. I have been thinking about a drugstore for the last five hours. All I could think about for the last five hours was a drugstore. And you get there and you realize this is absolutely worthless. I wish I wouldn't have wasted my time. So then you leave. You get, your, you get gas or whatever. You get your fuel and you continue on. And so then the next time, listen, I, since I've lived in South Dakota, I've driven back by it several times. And, at, at, and I'm being honest with you now. When I drive back across South Dakota, meaning I've literally had this happen where I'm driving across South Dakota and I, I enter into South Dakota and I see that first sign, wall drug, 408 miles. And I think, here we go again. And so I begin to drive and I'm seeing sign after sign after sign after sign. And, and I'm just thinking, I'm not going to go. Why would I go? It's absolutely stupid. This is ridiculous. And so I continue driving, and I get almost to the exit where Waldrug is, and then there's sign, 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 sign for Waldrug. And as I'm going by the exit to get off, I know I'm not going to go, and I say I'm not going to go. And so as I drive by the exit, I drive right by the exit, I see the exit go by me, and as, I, as I'm driving by the exit, and I'm being honest with you, I feel inside like I'm missing something. Like, maybe if I would have just gone this time, it would be a little bit better. Now, I know in reality, it's not going to be any better. But I want you to think about this for a moment. Advertising works. Now, this is not a seminar on advertising, but I want you to think about this. If, if something is presented to you one time, you think about it a little. If it's presented to you another time, you think about it a little more. And again and again and again and again and again, just like they do in South Dakota. And what happens is your mind begins to think about it, and you begin to think about it to the point where you actually begin to want whatever it is that you're looking at. And the devil knows this. The devil knows that if he can advertise to us, and I'm not talking about billboards anymore, but for instance, if somebody is struggling with pornography, if somebody is struggling with uh, lust, you know, they, they may walk by one young lady with a really short skirt and they think, okay, don't look. And the, and the first time, they do it. They, they, they avoid it. But then they, then, then they struggle the next time and the next time. And the devil basically brings things before. And if, if we don't somehow replace it with something better, what ends up happening is we fall into the temptation. We end up struggling. We end up stumbling and we fall. For somebody else, it may be a different temptation. Someone who is a smoker, smokes cigarettes, tobacco. And what happens is they, they haven't smoked maybe for a week or two. They're trying to quit. And so, but then they think about it or they see a sign and they look at the sign and they're like, ah, no big deal, I don't want that. Then they go a little further. Then they smell a cigarette. And they're like, oh, man, I could go for a smoke. Oh, no, I don't, I don't want to do it. It's going to destroy my body. And then they go a little further and somebody says, hey, hey, you want a cigarette? And like, oh, no, man, I quit. And so these advertisements continue to go on and they begin to change our mind to the point where we become tempted and we fall. God has a plan 
that he can replace our thoughts so that we do not have to stumble and we do not have to fall. We don't have to fall down with the temptations. The Bible says, and we can see it on the screen, in Revelation chapter 21, verses 6 and 7. It's not very bright. Hopefully you can read it. This is in the last book of the Bible, almost at the very end of Scripture. And the Bible says, Revelation 21, verse 6 and 7, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. This is Jesus Christ. He says, to him who, that next word is, thirsts, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely. He who overcomes will inherit all things and I will be his God and he will be my son. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. God says that his last day people, if they are going to enter into the kingdom of God, they are going to be overcomers. If we're going to go to heaven, we are going to be overcomers. Now, I want to be very clear before we go any further. I want to back up just a moment. We do not overcome to be saved. We overcome because we have been saved. I'm going to give you just a very, this is something I don't really share within the overcoming seminar in particular, but I want to share it because I think it's a very important point. Maybe you could help me out here. The Bible says, it, help me out if you know the verse, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. So the result, if you have sinned, you deserve what? Death. And then Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, for how many have sinned? How many? All have sinned. Everyone has sinned. So all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if all have sinned, that means all deserve to what? die. Now, do you have, how many, is anybody here from Austria? Anybody from Austria? Do you have the death penalty in Austria? Are there any European countries that have the death penalty? Anybody know? Okay, I don't know. Well, I, I just came from Texas. I don't live in Texas. But Texas has the death penalty. And Texas kills more people in the United States by the death penalty than any other state. Texas is a tough state. Texas, you know, a lot of people have guns, and actually, all over the states they have guns, but meaning Texas has a lot of guns. I mean, people have just a bunch of guns in their house. And, uh, you know, but nevertheless, if, if someone is caught in the state of Texas, let's just say in our mind for a moment, that a man, some mass murderer, he is a child abuser, so he takes all these little children and he sexually molests them, and then he murders them. If he lives in the state of Texas, y'all don't live in the state of Texas. They use the word y'all down there, all right? So y'all don't live in, in the state of Texas. But in Texas, if, if you are caught molesting children and murdering them, it's over. Your life is done. Meaning if, if, if it's proven that you've done it, you will be executed. Now let me ask you a question. If, so that guy, let's say the guy's caught. We'll call him Joey. Joey gets caught, and so he's put in prison. He's put in prison for molesting and murdering children. You say, Chad, this is an awful illustration, but I have to make the point. So he's put in prison. He receives the death sentence. He is going to die. Now, maybe this won't make sense because you don't understand the American justice system. Maybe you do. But in, if he is in this situation and he is waiting to die in what's called death row... How many good things will he have to do to get out of prison? Do you know how many good things he'll have to do? There is no amount of good things he can do to get out of prison. Do you understand? Like, listen, how many good things can he do? He killed 20 children and raped them. 
How many good things can he do to make up for what he's done? Do you, do you think 10,000 things would make up for murdering 20 children? Would, would 100,000 things, good deeds, make up for murdering 20 children? No. The Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death. So how many good things do we have to do to get into heaven? How many good things do we have to do to make up for our sin? You can't make up for your sin. There's no amount of good things that you can do. The, the wages of your sin is death. You deserve to die according to the scriptures. According to the Bible, we deserve to die because of our sins. But, but, it says in Romans chapter 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What does that mean? That means you can't do some good deeds to make up. I can't just be a good guy for the rest of my life. The only thing I can do, I have done all kinds of terrible things in my past. I've hurt people. I've done different things. And I cannot make up for them by doing good deeds now. But what it says is that we can be given the gift of salvation by Jesus Christ our Lord. What that means is you cannot work your way into heaven. Does this make sense? Because your works aren't good enough. Your works do not get rid of all the things you've done. The times you've lusted. The times you've been angry. The times you've lied. You can't make up for those things. The only thing you can do is be forgiven. You can be forgiven by God for those things. Now I'm going into more detail than I would for you. But, or for, than for the general public. But I just want to give you the realization. This is a seminar on overcoming. Not working your way to salvation. Now, some of the things that we might want to overcome that you may struggle with or somebody else you may know, you may not struggle with these particular things, but you may have your own issue. It's number one, it's hard to read, chronic stress. One of the things we would like to overcome is chronic stress. That's continual stress, living continually in that. It actually, if we had more time, we'd share with you, it causes certain diseases or at least uh, exacerbates those diseases. It, it makes those diseases even worse, chronic stress. Uh, number two, Anger, we want to overcome anger, lack of forgiveness, or judgmental thoughts. Anger, lack of forgiveness, or judgmental thoughts. Many people are struggling in bad habits and maybe even addictions because they haven't been able to forgive someone that's hurt them. They haven't been able to forgive someone that has hurt them. Number four, number three rather, one of the things to overcome is eating disorders, Bulimia, anorexia, you know, many times it's an issue that young women have. Bulimia is making yourself vomit. Uh, anorexia is maybe, maybe over-exercising, not eating enough, not getting enough calories and so forth. Or just continually eating unhealthy food. We want to learn to overcome those things. Obviously, we're in Europe. How many of you have been to the United States? There's a lot of, lot of very, very heavy, fat people in the United States. Is that true? Have you noticed that? Nobody dares say yes, but I've noticed that. I mean, there are a lot of fat, overweight people in the United States. Uh, it's very unhealthy there, very unhealthy. And so uh, this is something that's a very real issue here, I, I, or in the United States. I don't know how it is in Austria. I know typically the Euro, you know, Europe and so forth is much healthier than the United States. But nevertheless, um, we want to learn to not, not constantly be eating unhealthy food. Number four is typically what we think of overcoming, which is maybe any negative habits or any addictions such as smoking, drinking, drugs, pornography and lust, uh, bad television, things on television that are bad. Obviously, there's some decent things, but uh, gambling or you fill in the blank, any kind of negative habit. You may have something that's not on this list. 
Maybe you have a negative habit that you know is destroying you. Different people have different habits that they're not able to overcome. These are some of the things we would like to overcome. Now, the basis of our seminar is this next quote. And the quote goes like this. It says, never forget. Never forget that thoughts work out actions. Repeated actions form habits, and habits form what? Character. So I want you to think about this. Never forget that your thoughts, the things you think about, thoughts work out actions. Repeated actions form habits, and habits form character. Now I want you to think with me for a moment that when you think about something, the the quote says this, and just so you know, and I don't tell the general public, but I'm telling you, this is an Ellen White quote. And this is the basis of humanity and it's these simple words. So think about this with me for a moment. Your thoughts. Never forget that the things you think about, when you think about something enough, your thoughts, what do they work out? They work out actions. When you think about something enough, you will end up maybe speaking about it or acting upon those thoughts. So your thoughts that you have, they become an action. The repeated actions, the things that you do multiple times become habits, and all of your habits together become your character. Does that make sense? Now, many times people try to change their habits or they try to change their character, but they always end up struggling back into the same actions. They keep doing the same thing over and over and over. And so they say, man, I really want to change my character. I want to change these habits. And, but they keep falling back into the same actions. Why? Because what has not been changed? The thoughts. The thoughts have not been changed. If the thoughts can be changed, your actions will be changed. Your habits will be changed. And eventually your what will be changed? Your character. You follow? So this is the most important aspect, that if we can live by this principle that your thoughts will work out actions, repeated actions form habits, and habits form character, you can be totally transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Bible, this is a biblical principle, Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says this, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So if you want to be transformed according to the Bible, The Bible says you need to be transformed in your mind. If you're going to be changed, that transformation will take place up here. The transformation will take place in your mind. The Bible also says in Isaiah 26 verse 3 that God will keep you in perfect peace if your mind is stayed upon him. God will keep you in perfect peace if your mind is stayed upon him. I think about Jesus. Imagine Jesus with me for a moment. One of my favorite uh, captions of Jesus in Scripture, one of my favorite experiences of Jesus, and it's actually a terrible experience, but um, when Jesus was standing before Pontius Pilate, and when he's standing before Pilate, the Roman governor, and he's standing there, and the Jews are screaming to murder him. They are literally screaming, crucify him, kill this man. And, and Pilate's struggling with the whole thing. What, what has he done? And so everybody is, is totally going nuts except one individual. And who is that? Jesus. Jesus is absolutely calm when the entire world is breaking down around him. When people are seeking to murder him, he is in absolute calmness because Jesus, it says you will keep him in perfect peace whose what? Mind is stayed upon God. 
Jesus was able to stay calm, not because he was God, although he was God, but because as a human being, he trusted in his heavenly Father. The Bible says in Job chapter 22, verse 21, it says, acquaint now yourself with him. Acquaint yourself with God and be at peace. As we spend time with God, as we spend time contemplating God, even in stressful, difficult circumstances, God brings peace into our lives. And guess what? Think about it. So my thoughts about God are going to create actions after a godly manner. And those actions are going to become habits, and those habits are going to become my new character. Because it used to be that my thoughts were continually on lustful things. And so they worked out lustful actions and lustful habits and lustful character. My thoughts used to be on angry subjects. So my anger would turn into outbursts of rage yelling at people or hitting somebody. And so these things were, these were my thoughts that worked out actions that became habits, and they were who I was. I was known to be a very angry individual. I was known to be someone who would just yell at somebody or push somebody or whatever. And so, because, because my thoughts were constantly consumed with angry subjects. My thoughts were consumed with angry subjects, and as a result, they worked out angry actions, angry habits, and angry character. But God can turn all that around if we are tra- transformed by the renewing of our, what? Our mind. How many of you ever he- have ever heard the story of the man Phineas Gage? Wow. Pretty good, several of you. Uh, Phineas Gage was a railroad worker in the United States in the state of Vermont. He was, was well liked by his fellow workers. He was an industrious young man, and as a result, he, he became a foreman, which was like a, a leadership position at his work on the railroad. So he was a diligent worker. And one day, as he was working on the railroad, what they would have to do is um, they would have to. There was a, there's a lot of rock, a lot of stone in, in Vermont. So they would have to make, make the stone flat so they could lay down a railroad track and so that the trains could pass over. And what, what would happen was they would go and they would, they would drill down into the rock and they would put an explosive powder, kind of like um, gunpowder, in the bottom of the hole. Then they would put sand on top of it and they would have a wick or, or an igniting switch and so what they would do is they would in, in, they would put the gunpowder down then they would put the sand down then they would take this long metal piece of metal called a tamping iron they would take this piece of metal and they would push pack it down and as they were packing it down this particular day as he was packing it down it somehow ignited the gunpowder and it exploded and as it exploded, uh, it, there was no time to react. It shot up this, this it was about this long. The, it, it, sh- it was about a, about a meter long. And as it shot up, it hit Phineas in the cheek here, and it blew out the top of his skull. Literally burst right through his head, like a missile, shot right through his head. Here's the, if you imagine this individual is laying down. They're laying down like, like that. And so this is the top of their head up here. This is, the, this is the back of the head, the occipital lobe. And this is what we call this gray area here is called the frontal lobe. That's the frontal lobe. This is what happened. As this rod blew through his skull, it, it blew a hole literally and it took part of his brain right with it. It just shot out of his head. Terrible experience. Within minutes, Phineas was able to walk and talk. He, he literally had a hole in his head Burst, it, it, he lost his eye too. He lost one of his eyes as a result. Blew through his head and immediately he was able to walk and talk. And he was telling people the story. He's like, oh, it was amazing. 
It was amazing. This rod just blew through my head. And he was able to talk about it uh, almost like nothing happened. It was People, what? I don't believe you. But I mean, I mean, they could see the guy was bleeding every, but they just couldn't believe that it blew through his head. And it did. Now, you're saying, why are you telling us this terrible story? Because of this accident of Phineas Gage, to give you an idea, there it is. It went through, hit the bottom of his cheek, blew out the top of his skull, took out his eye in the process. Uh, scientists have been, you know, this was back in the 1840s. And this was kind of the beginning of discovering the work of the frontal lobe, the front portion of the human brain. Now, what have we learned from this? Now, before the accident, Phineas was the foreman of the railroad crew. He was a faithful husband. He was a good husband. And he was a good father. He was well-liked by his fellow workers, and he was a religious man in regular church attendance until that terrible day of September 13, 1848. Well, what happened? Obviously, the rod blew through his skull. And since it's so dark, I have an actual picture of him, and I'll show you that in the next slide. Uh, it might be hard to see because it's kind of dark. But after the accident, Phineas was changed. He was still quite intelligent, but something about Phineas changed. Number one, he would become very emotional and angry about things. So he went from being maybe a uh, you know, cool and collected kind of individual, someone who is calm, to being very angry and emotional. And maybe you think, well, maybe you would get a little angry if a piece of metal blew through your skull, right? But we're going to discover that it's much more than just that. Something changed about Phineas, and it was his character. His character changed. So, what else happened? He lost interest in church and spirituality, so he used to be religious, now he no more was. Uh, he became irreverent and prone to excessive profanity. He swore a lot, he was cursing. He would curse a lot, he didn't used to do that. Also, he lost all respect for social customs. It goes on to say, this is an actual picture, I'm sorry you guys can't really see it. If, if, it's, if, the, screen were, or if the projector were brighter, you'd see it better. But he's actually holding the rod that went through his skull. Uh, he became very irresponsible. He went from a prized employee to the unemployment rules. He ended up forsaking his wife and family and joined a traveling circus. What was it about Phineas Gage that changed? It wasn't that necessarily his intellect was gone. It wasn't anymore that, or, that he was unintelligent, but his character changed. Phineas' character, who he was in, in his heart, seemed to change because of something that happened to the frontal portion of his brain. Now, speaking, uh, speaking about the frontal lobe, we read uh, about a neuroscientist. He says the brain's frontal lobes which sit behind the forehead, allow us to use what we know about the world to guide our decision-making. The decision-making center of the brain is right here, right behind the forehead. Not the entire brain, but right behind the forehead, the frontal lobe or the prefrontal cortex. Scientific studies reveal that the frontal lobe, this, it's obviously it's not literally blue, but the blue portion of the brain in the picture, the frontal lobe is the seat of spirituality, morality, and the will. Spirituality, morality, and the will are centered in the human being behind the forehead, in the frontal lobe. You follow? 
So the frontal lobe is the seat. It is the part of you that has spiritual thoughts, spiritual desires. It's the part of you where morality, when you feel convicted, it seems this is the part of humanity that has the morality and also your will. Your decision-making center is right here in the frontal lobe. Phineas, because his was destroyed, it destroyed his morality. He was still able to walk, he was still able to talk, but his morality was changed. And we, in the, in the overcoming seminar that we do, our purpose is to strengthen the frontal lobe. If you, are, you have habits that are destroying the frontal lobe, that are hurting the frontal lobe, what happens is it will hurt your morality, it will hurt your spirituality, and it will also hurt your will, your decision-making. Young people today, especially in the United States of America, they have written about the young people of America, and what they have said is this is the dumbest generation ever. This is the dumbest generation ever. So much for evolving, right? We don't seem to be evolving in America. We're the dumbest generation ever. Now, if, if we're the dumbest generation ever, the question is why? Why is this new generation all of a sudden so, so ignorant, so, so uh, unintelligent, it's not that they couldn't be intelligent, but they have habits. They have, the, because of their thoughts, they have habits, and they have actions in their character. All of these things have made within them a form of stupidity. I don't say that as, in a proud way, but they are who they are because of their thoughts and their actions. Because of the things they are doing, it is destroying their frontal lobe, and they do not have strong morality, spirituality, and they have no will. They can't even make decisions, literally. Can you, can you guess, in the United States, when I ask a, a, a crowd of young people, I ask them, what is the most common answer that any given young person would answer me if I asked them any question? What do you think the answer would be? I don't know. I don't know. They don't even have a will anymore. A will, a will is something that helps you decide. Young people have so dwarfed their frontal lobe, they can't even make decisions, you follow? The reality is we can strengthen the frontal lobe. There are certain things we can think about, and we can, those things we think about can cause us to act, and those thoughts and those actions can actually strengthen our frontal lobe, and we can be changed people. Because if you want to be changed, the Bible says you need to be changed where? In your mind, right? So you don't have to be, this doesn't have to be, I don't know if this is the dumbest generation ever in Europe. I figure European young people are much smarter than your typical young person in the United States. I, I figure that's true, and I can see that by talking to people. But the point is, I can guarantee that even Europe is probably going downhill somewhat. Sure, we seem so smart because we got our iPads and our iPods and, and our computers, and so we have all this knowledge in front of us, but people still, their morality isn't increasing typically they're not, some people maybe, don't, don't get me wrong, you, you may be a different crowd, but in general, young people on the street are not what they used to be. And it's because of the thoughts, it's because of the actions that have become habits and character. But the United States is the worst of all, probably. So we'll give it to them. Now, in overcoming, to, to actually overcome habits uh, or addictions. You know, there, now, not every habit is fully an addiction. Typically, an addiction, we think of a substance. You may have a habit that you're struggling with. In our seminar, we do not ask people to, you know, reveal to everybody what they're struggling with. Does that make sense? We don't say, brother, come to the front and reveal your sins to the crowd, right? We don't do that. Um, the reason we don't do that is because that's not biblical, now, it's one thing if somebody is giving a testimony on how God has given them victory and the Lord just put it on their heart to share with people, but we are actually told in the spirit of prophecy that secret sins, you know what a secret sin is, right? 
a sin that you have committed and nobody knows about. The Bible says secret sins, or Spirit of Prophecy says, secret sins should be confessed secretly to God alone. Public sins should be confessed publicly. You follow? Meaning, let's say all of a sudden, I all of a sudden went on a rage and got very angry and started yelling at all of you. That is a public sin, you follow? And because it's a public sin, if I started yelling, whatever, you know, I got angry, I should, as a result of that, I should what? Publicly confess, you follow? So that's different. But secret sins should be confessed secretly, public sins should be confessed publicly. So we are not going to ask you to come forward and tell everybody what your sin, deep, most, you know, hidden sin that you have is. But you know what you struggle with. You know the things that you struggle with. And God wants to give you the victory. And you don't necessarily have to reveal that to me, and I don't even necessarily want you to. I mean, if you, want to, if you have something you need to deal with that you want to talk with us, that's fine. We, we're, we love to talk with you. But the point being, we're not asking you to all confess your sins, not at all. You, you understand. This is between you and God, and you take the principles on your own, and you take these things into your life, and through your connection with God, you become the overcomer through God's strength. It's not on your own. There's no strength of your own. This is divinely inspired from God. So number one, though, a few essentials for overcoming. A few essentials for, and actually, I'm going to read this. I, I, let, me, let me read you one quote. This, to me, is the most hopeful thing I have ever heard in my entire life. It's hard to do it with a microphone, so hold on. Check this out. I want, before, before I read the quote to you, this is, this is from a book called Gospel Workers. It's Ellen White, page 109. Uh, before I read the quote to you, I want you to think, and remember, I'm not going to ask you to yell it out. I'm not going to say, now tell us your sins. But I want you to think within your own head, what is the temptation that you struggle with the most? What, think in your head right now. I mean, is it, is it anger? Is it, maybe you're, you have an actual addiction to a drug or alcohol or tobacco or uh, sleeping pills or whatever it is, you know? What, what, what is the worst addiction or the worst, maybe it's not an addiction for you, but a bad habit that you have or the worst thought process that, that constantly go through your mind that you struggle with? What are the absolute worst, worst one what, or for you? What's the worst one for you, I should say? Now listen to this. This is awesome. It says, speaking of ministers, but it, but, but it applies to all of us. It says, they do not watch and pray lest they enter into temptation check this out. If they would watch and if they would watch, they would become acquainted with their weak points where they are most likely to be assailed by temptation. Listen to this. With watchfulness and prayer, your weakest points can be so guarded as to become your strongest points. And you can encounter temptation without being overcome. Now let me explain what that's saying. It says your weakest points. So think of the worst sin that you have, the worst temptation that you have. And if nothing is coming to mind, if you can't think of any bad sins that you have, your worst sin is pride, right? If you can't think of any, you got a pride issue, right? But I can think of things. That's not real hard. So the reality is this. So think of your worst temptation that you have. We are told through watchfulness and prayer that those things that you have, that you struggle with, your weakest points can not only, not, it doesn't just say you can overcome them. It says your, your weakest point can become your, what? Your strongest point. 
So imagine that part of you. Let's say you struggle with anger. So not only can you get to the point where you don't, you don't yell at people anymore, but you can get to the point where you are the most calming, love, kind person, or at least you know, that's your best characteristic. You follow? If you struggle with lust, you can, you can get to the point where not only do you just not struggle with lust, or I don't look, boy, I want to look, but I'm not going to look. I'm not going to do it. Not like that. You can get to the point where you are so loving and so caring that you wouldn't even want to do that to the other individual. You wouldn't want to do that to your Savior. God can take your weakest points that you have, and he can turn them into the strongest points. Is that good news, yes or no? That is awesome news. I can't think of any better news except for the fact that Jesus died for my sins, but now he can take my worst points, and he can make them my strongest points, and he can make you, and he can make me overcomers. And that's what he wants to do. He wants to make us overcomers. But a few essentials to overcoming. Number one is you have to have a desire to overcome. When I first began smoking, and I remember a guy telling me, Chad, you better quit, and I had no desire to quit. I had no desire, and so did I quit? No, I didn't quit. First of all, you have to come to the point where you actually feel the need to overcome. You have to feel the need to overcome. Now, you may have a friend that you want to overcome. You could pray for them. You may even fast for them. But you... you I mean, that's all you can do, really. You can pray and you can fast. Lord, please help this person to find the victory or even have a desire for victory. You may say, Father Father in heaven, my dad is an alcoholic. Father, he doesn't want to quit. But I'm pleading with you. I'm I'm, I'm even going to fast for this man. And maybe the Lord will work on his heart and then he'll have a desire. But someone first has to have a desire, number one. Number two, you need to have an open mind. If what you've been doing doesn't work, you need to have an open mind. Now, we have a saying in the States... That you don't want your mind to be so open that your brain falls out. Have you heard that? Do you guys have that? Is that like, you have that in German too? Brain falling out thing? Okay, good. All right. I got some shakes of the head, so I'll trust you do. But nevertheless, we do. So the point being, we're not asking you to be ridiculous. Just do whatever we say. Do this, say these things six times and it will go away. No, no, no. We're not talking about spiritualism. We're not talking about a magic trick. We're talking about being transformed by God's strength through his word. Okay? So we're talking about having an open mind. Now, I want to encourage you to have an open mind. Say, listen, if what I'm doing is not working, I have to have an open mind to try something new. My wife, she shares this seminar with me. She's going to come up now. And she is going to share, uh, before we go any further, she's going to give a what's called a little disclaimer. You know what a disclaimer is? Uh, how would we define disclaimer? Disclaimer. Anybody have a good German word for that? No. A disclaimer is basically saying, listen, kind of a warning, maybe a little warning message. Like, would it be a warning? Not exactly. Uh, we'll call it a warning. Okay, a little bit of warning. Okay, go ahead. Okay, the warning is, we're not your doctors. That's it. We're not your doctors. So reason we say that is because um, you'll see in this health seminar that we have some things that we um, ask people to do. Um, And so if you are under the care of your physician, that you remain there. But you could talk to to them about these things as well. You can talk to your physician and say, hey, what do you think if I try this, that, or the other? And these are just basic 
health principles that we're sharing with you. But we like to give that warning so people don't go and do these things and then you hurt yourself and then you blame us for hurting yourself because you understand? That's a disclaimer. Okay, so that's our disclaimer. But let's continue the thought that Chad had about the frontal lobe. Let's see what the Bible has to say about this. This is fascinating. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, it says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having their father's name written, where? In their foreheads. Isn't that interesting? What did we just find out is in your forehead? The frontal lobe. And what does the frontal lobe do? What is one of the few functions of the frontal lobe? Exactly. Spirituality, morality, and the will. Interesting. Now watch this. What does he want to put in our frontal lobes? Father's name. What is name in the Bible? Character. That's right. How do we know that? Okay. Exodus is one place. How about in a practical way? Uh, do you see any people having a change of name? when their characters changed? Jacob became Israel. Who else? Saul became Paul. Abram became Abraham, and Sarai became Sarah. Interesting. So when there was a character change, the name changed, and so we see that name and character are synonymous. Okay, so in particular, Jacob. I speak Aramaic. And um, that's because I'm Assyrian, you know, like Jonah and the whale. He went to preach to the Assyrians in Nineveh. Um, we're natives of Iraq. And most people don't even believe that we exist, but we do. And we speak Aramaic. In Aramaic, Jacob and heel are very similar words. When he was born, what did he do? He grabbed his brother's heel. He's a heel grabber, so he trips you up, right? He's a deceiver. He trips you up. That's a part of his character. He was born being like that. He was a deceiver. But praise the Lord. He wrestled with the Lord, and his name was changed to Israel. What does Israel mean? Pretty much, just to give you a quick, a quick answer, overcomer. Okay? He became an overcomer. He overcame uh, the character he was born with through God. He wrestled with the Lord and he overcame. So isn't that powerful? The Lord does these things for us. So he wants to put the Father's name. So what character in particular does he want to put right here? Whose character do you think he wants to put right here? Who is a perfect example? Jesus. So the way Jesus was on this earth, the way he walked and talked and dealt with people and dealt with uh, the Pharisees coming and attacking him and, and the mistakes of his disciples, how he dealt with all those things, God wants to put that same character in you and me. Isn't that exciting? That's extremely exciting. And it's beautiful how the Lord does this. And this is in Revelation. This is where the warfare is, right? This is what he's wanting to do, put his character in our foreheads. So because of that, we want to know what are some frontal lobe killers. We want to protect this frontal lobe, right? So we want to protect it. We want to know what are some attacks of the enemy. What are some things that would destroy it? Drugs, of course. 
Drugs destroy the frontal lobe. Did you know that a lack of use also destroys the frontal lobe? Yes, a lack of use. There was a woman in her 90s, and she felt like her mind was slipping, so she decided to memorize the book of Revelation in her 90s. Is anyone here 90? No, right? So she, she decided to do that. Another thing with lack of use is it's your decision-making center. And as young people, a lot of times we struggle with making decisions. Why is that? Why do we struggle making decisions? We don't practice them, but why don't we practice making decisions? Because we're afraid of making mistakes. We're afraid of making mistakes. But you know what? I say this carefully. It's better to make a decision, make the wrong one, and then what? Learn from it. Exactly. You learn from it. You grow. Because if you don't make any decision, you've never really uh, grappled and wrestled with, with, okay, if I do this, then that. If you, if you make a mistake, guess who's there to help you? God is there to help you through it. If your heart is sincere and you're, and you're working with him and you're pleading with him, you learn through these things. But if we just become um, afraid of everything and never make any decisions, our minds become dwarfed from lack of use. Okay, another thing is certain kinds of music affect the frontal lobe in particular. Um, head injuries. I don't know how it is here, but in the U.S., uh, people are adrenaline junkies. Do you know what that is? They love to do wild things like jumping out of planes and uh, all kinds of crazy things, right? And they also do these, these uh, sports that are extreme sports, and they do them without helmets, okay? If you do it without a helmet, what is that going to do to your frontal lobe? Damage it. We have had people come up to us after we um, share these things, and they say, yeah, actually, I've had some physical damage to my frontal lobe. What can I do? And besides a miracle, only thing you could do is implement the things we teach and at least uh, maintain what you do have. But I would encourage people, don't be so excited to go destroy your physical brain, right, with those things. All right, move on. Lack of nutrition. Uh, this is huge for those of you that are, are very smart. I don't know if we'll get time to discuss that, but if you are very smart, you need to have a balanced diet, exercise. Um, your brain cannot live off of a junk food diet. You will be depressed, I promise you. Um, your brain runs so fast, it needs really good, wholesome food. And if you are very smart and your brain runs fast, uh, this is just like very quick what I'm telling you. I'm just saying it. Um, normally we have a whole session just on nutrition, but we won't do that here. But that's just the gist of it. Please try to be a healthy young person. It's so good for your brain. That's, that's that. All right, let's continue. All right, the Bible has a few things uh, that we can pull from when it comes to dealing with um, temptations or some negative habit in our life, something we've had for a long time. We're struggling with it. For example, back to the Assyrians. Uh, when Jonah came to the Assyrians, what did he tell, him, tell them? He said, repent or else you're going to be destroyed. So what did they do? What did they do? Huh? 
But what did they do for three days? They fasted and prayed. And they overcame, right? Um, you see story after story in the Bible. Fasting and praying go hand in hand when you have major struggles. When you have something you're trying to deal with. So we implement this into our program. We normally do this over five or six days, and we work with the local churches, and um, we have people go through this program with us during the week all together. And we implement fasting. Well, let me share with you a few things about what goes on in the liver. What do you think goes on in the liver? Wastes, filtering, um, do you know also that the liver stores glucose? And it's called glycogen, right? When it stores it in, in it's a, like a sugar. Glucose is like a sugar. So when, have you heard the uh, fight or flight syndrome? Like when you have to do something very quick, your body has to kick in extra glucose so that you can do it. Let's say a child is about to get run over by a car and you hurry up and you grab the child, you have all this extra energy to do it. When that happens, um, your liver is actually giving you that extra glucose. You know when your stress hormones kick in? Immediately your liver uh, starts to release the glucose to um, help you manage that situation. Which, back to the, this is just a little side thing, the stress, the chronic stress. If you're chronically stressed, guess what's always releasing glucose? Your liver. And you overwhelm your pancreas because you're always having this glucose running through. Um, just a little side note, because you could be very skinny and still have diabetes issues. All right, that was a side thing. So back to the whole uh, liver thing. So when you're fasting, remember the glucose comes in from you feeding yourself? If you're fasting, where do you get the energy to continue the normal fu daily functions? It's from that liver is continually giving you the glucose, right? It starts to release it. Guess what else gets released with it? Toxins. You got it. So that's a perfectly good time to do a detox, right? It's a natural detox. When you fast, your body is actually releasing those toxins that have been stored up all the time because now it's just letting things go. Does that make sense? Am I making sense here? So when you're fasting, you're not putting anything in. Your body starts to let go of these toxins as um, it's giving you nourishment. So with that, you also have to drink water to flush them out so you don't reabsorb them, right? All right, so with that said, this is what we do. And now, mind you, a lot of people have never even tried a fast. So we don't, we don't push a heavy-duty fast on them. This is what we do. For heavy alcoholics, drug addicts, and diabetics, we have them for the first day do water, fruit, veggies, and whole grain bread. It's very important that you have them do that because it's way too much for them to go on a full-out fast. But this is, this is a fast to most people um, if they've never done anything else. Okay, so that's heavy alcoholic, drug addicts, and diabetics. Water, fruit, veggies, and whole grain bread. For everyone else, for the first day, we do water, 100% juice, and fruit. And the 100% juice is like real fruit, not the sugar stuff, all right? And then, so that's the first day, and I'll just tell you right now what the other days are. Then the second day, when people come back, I tell them, now you can add 
uh, fresh vegetables and greens to your diet, okay? And we have, and then we, each day that we talk about a different food, we give uh, incentives about that food. We tell you the good things about it and what it does for the brain and the body, and it really encourages people like, yeah, I'm going to try it. And so we add veggies to the diet. The third day comes and we add whole grain bread, okay? Um, I don't need to say this here so much, but in the U.S., have you ever eaten the Wonder Bread? You wonder what it is. Um, it's really nasty stuff. Um, you can add a little water to it and smush it and throw it on the wall and it'll like act like a little plaster on there. It's really gross. I don't know how we grow up on that junk. But it's nothing. You can just squeeze it all together, and it's absolutely nothing. You don't have that problem here so much. But I highly recommend eating whole grain bread. It's whole. It's the way God put it together. You heard that verse, what God has put together, let no man put asunder. I know that's talking about marriage. But how about the grain, okay? The grain, we can use that same concept. All right, so um, the whole grain bread is the third day. The fourth day, you can add uh, legumes, seeds, nuts to the diet, okay? So you can start putting your spreads and things like that on the fourth day. And then the fifth day, we just ask them to do all those things and then see how long they can continue like that. And a lot of times when we do this, some people will come up to us afterwards and say, hey, I'm surprised how I feel on this. Can you teach me some more about how to eat like this? And then we start a vegetarian cooking class. It's really interesting. Um, but anyway, do you see the concept? Every day you add something, and uh, it's a cleansing diet. But I know for some of you who do fasting, you're just like, that's not a fast. But it is for those who have never done it before, and it works for them. All right. Actually, well, another side note, sorry. We have some friends from Iceland. We actually worked in Iceland for a whole year, and there's about 17 representatives here. And one of them... When we were there, he was a really big, heavy guy. And he tried this whole fast thing, but you know what he did? He did like a whole week of like the fruit and juice. Then the next week he did, he added the veggies. And then the next week he did a, a, a modified one. If you see him now, you would not even, he's half the weight he used to be. And now the Lord is using him there in Iceland to give testimonies. He'll, he'll do the same thing we're doing here, and he'll have pictures of himself. This is who I was. This is who I am today. And it's just, it's so exciting, and I'm so glad that we got to see him here. But he, he modified it to what he needed. So you can learn about these things, study them, and see um, what kind of fast would work for you. All right. Now, a lot of people will think, man, this is tough stuff, you know, and... and it just seems overwhelming. Let's get a little encouragement here from the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. It says, What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We are not our own. Amen? This body does not belong to us. It belongs to God, and we're to glorify him through it. Like our friend I told you about Iceland, he's glorifying God now through his body. Others are being benefited by the things that he's allowed God to do in his body. All right, there's a super drink. 
What is it? It can increase energy, endurance, prevent kidney stones, aid in digestion and elimination, regulate the body's temperature, and bring about a feeling of well-being. Yet very few of us consume as much as we should. What is this super drink? Yes, of course, God's beverage. Water. Water, that's right. All right. Um, have you heard about the uh, exhibitions to Mount Everest and how it, so many years they tried to go up there and they couldn't do it and they tried? And what are some of the things you hear? Like, oh, they found out that, you know, if you, if you hiked up a certain amount uh, one day and then you come back down to another elevation. Have you heard that? They would hike up so far and then they come down a little and then the next day they hike up higher. But you know what else that we don't hear a lot about how they made it to the top? Is water. They used to take a little water with them because they thought, oh, it's too heavy to take too much water with us, right? But they started to discover that water was one of the things that helped them to get to the top. So there was a professor who thought, hmm, I want to know if this is for real or not. So he did a study. And this is how the study worked. He had these athletes, and he had them do three different tests. And the first test, and I can see here that we can't see this very well, but um, the first test, sorry, here you see the, the, you see the, the top layer there? Here, let me use this. This top layer, that's the zone of exhaustion. That's when your temperature gets above what you need it to be. And you get exhausted. And this is the zone of comfort, this blue area, okay? So they didn't give them any water for the first trial. And the, they were only able to go maybe um, like two hours before they got exhausted. And mind you, they're just on a treadmill walking. That's all they're doing, on a treadmill walking and walking, and they got exhausted about two hours, okay? That was the first group that wasn't given water. Then the second group was given water as they desired it. That means, um, I'm, I feel thirsty, can I have some water? Sure, here you go, and they're walking. This is when they got exhausted about five hours or so, okay? They got exhausted, they got their temperature too high, they were done. Look at the third group. The third group was given water as their body needed it. So they would measure how much are they sweating, how much is coming out from their mouth, um, all of that, and they would put that back in, put it back in constantly. And look at here. That's the third group. And they kept walking and walking and walking, and they never reached it. So they just stopped the experiment. They were able to just keep going and going and going as they replenished the water. How many of us feel like having a drink right now? I do. Amen? Look at this. This is another interesting thing. And now what I'm going to show you has to do with the brain because we want to strengthen the brain. And those of you that are students, this is important. Oh, dear. Sorry, you guys. We'll try to change this. Um, a person would have to lose 10% of their body weight in fluids to be considered dehydrated, okay? If you're, if you're considered dehydrated, you have to lose 10%. But as little as 2% can affect athletic performance, 
cause tiredness and dull critical thinking abilities. As little as what? 2% water shortage, right? Dehydration can cause athletic performance, can be affected, tiredness, and dull critical thinking. What's dull critical thinking? Remember the frontal lobe is where you do your, your most thinking, you're contemplating things between right and wrong. As little as 2% low on your fluids can affect that. So isn't that important? that we have that water with us when that temptation comes in, right? A lot of times, if you feel anxious, try drinking water and see what the, where, where that anxiety goes, okay? All right, what are some benefits of drinking water? It lowers your blood pressure. It elevates your mood. It helps detoxify the liver. Maintain or lose weight. Maintains body temperature and it gives you clear thoughts. So all of these things are very beneficial, but you could see your mood gets affected and also your thoughts. Have you ever heard of when um, people are, are in the desert and they start to get dehydrated? What do they start to see? Mirage. I guess in a way you do see them anyway, but sometimes you, you start to get delusional, you know, when you get dehydrated. I had a friend... Um, who had migraine headaches all the time growing up. He joined the U.S. military. I don't recommend this for, for uh, migraines, <laughs> but he joined the U.S. military, and they get you on a water program. They have you drinking water all the time, and his migraines completely went away. He just was dehydrated all the time. Okay, here's some recommendations for drinking your water. Start each day by drinking two eight-ounce glasses of water. Anybody can help me with that? Somebody got an iPhone? Sorry about that. Two eight-ounce glasses. You know the eight-ounce glass is just like this big. You know, like, so if you drink two of those in the morning. Um, then get in the habit of not drinking with your meals, okay? Don't have time to get into all that. Um, in between meals, instead of snacking, drink water. Drink more glasses of water, at least two more. And then have a water, a bottle of water with you at all times. How many of you have your water with you right now? Excellent. Very good. Very good. All right. And then people always ask me, well, how much do I drink? One of the, one of the doctors I know recommends uh, half your body weight in ounces. We need to look this up. Um, for example, I'll just give you a formula, and then you can figure it out. If, if I weigh 100 pounds, I would drink 50 ounces of water. Okay? That's the simplest way to put it. And then you can figure out the math. Sorry. So if you weigh 100 pounds, 50 ounces. If you weigh 200 pounds, 100 ounces of water. Um, and to a lot of people, that's quite a bit of water. And if you're athletic, if you're very uh, physically active, you could drink more than that. But for some people, this is a lot. All right, so when the cravings come, when, when, when you're feeling tempted, when, uh, for example, you want to smoke a cigarette, when you want to um, do something, whatever it is, you know your situation. These are the, some of the things we list off for you to do. 
Drink your water, okay? Start drinking your water. What is that doing for you? It's cleansing you. It's giving you a good new habit in place of the old one. Because think about it, a lot of things that habits we have have to do with a hand to mouth. You notice that? Whether it's cigarettes, eating habits, chewing our nails, picking, whatever it is, hand to mouth. And so you're, you're getting rid of that um, bad habit and you're putting a new good one. So drink that water. Then get up and walk. Walk, 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 walk. Yeah, and for young people, you need to do more than walking. Um, your heart rate has to go up higher, and so you need something more vigorous. Uh, what did God have Adam to do right at the beginning? He put him to work in the garden, amen? God has given us exercise to stimulate our blood naturally. But because we've become so sedentary, or we sit a lot, we sit in front of the computer, we sit in our cars, we sit everywhere. Uh, here in Europe, praise the Lord, you walk more to places. But a lot of people sit. And so you don't get that natural stimulation of your blood, right? Your heart's not pumping. So what do we do then to feel like that? We artificially stimulate ourselves, right? And how do we artificially stimulate ourselves? Caffeine, certain kinds of foods that are stimulating, um, whatever it may be, we artificially stimulate ourselves. But God has given us a natural means to get that nice, good feeling when you exercise, right? And also when you're in a situation, you get up and you remove yourself from it. Go out, get some fresh air and sunshine, and remove yourself from that situation. Then claiming Bible promises and praying. Um, you heard one of them, Psalms 26, verse 4. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. When you're feeling overwhelmed, anxious, whatever it may be, let's say you struggle with anger. Here's a good one, Proverbs 15, verse 1. Does anyone know that one? A soft answer turns away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. And so when I'm in a situation where I feel like someone's yelling at me and I want to yell back and I say, Lord, in the back of my mind, Lord, you've promised a soft answer turns away wrath. Please, Lord, help me right now. I want to be kind and loving to this person. And so you know how we always have that, the back of our heads, you know, we have that, the thoughts. We can turn that, those thoughts into our prayer life where we continually have intercession with the Lord, Right? Then Chad is going to come up right now and teach us about breathing. Let me share with you a couple more things about promises. <clears throat> Remember we talked about the billboards in South Dakota? You see them over and 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 you begin to think about them. Those thoughts work out what? Actions, repeated actions form habits and habits form character. Say it with me one time, all right? Thoughts work out actions, repeated actions form habits, and habits form character, right? So what happens is the devil has all these billboards. God has given us something that can be a billboard for us. Every time the temptations come, we can take a promise. We can take one of God's promises from the Word of God. I actually carry some around in my pocket. I have a little, uh, little thing here that I, I write Bible verses on. Uh, you don't know, like this one. The, the one I pulled out right now just randomly was John chapter 5, verse 50, where Jesus says, I can of my own self do nothing. 
As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. Jesus says, I can of mine own will do nothing. What? I thought Jesus was God. He is God. But when Jesus came to this earth, he became a man for us. And so Jesus couldn't do anything he wanted because he was God. He could only do those things which were God's will. So he had to receive all of his strength from who? The Father. And then the same way, when we're tempted, what should we do? We need strength. We don't have strength to overcome in and of ourselves. So the promises, the Bible promises, so when the temptations come, I'll give you an example. Uh, what, give, what's a temptation? Think of a temptation. Anything. Smoking. Okay, so I, I want to smoke, right? And I used to smoke. I used to smoke, and it was destroying my body. And then I can remember that God told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that my body, so okay, I want a cigarette. And then, then my, the verse comes to my head that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have of God, and you are not your own. That you are bought with a price, so we're to glorify God in our body. So, so I want to have a cigarette, and then I say, God, I want, I want a cigarette. And I go to God, and I say, Father, your word tells me that I'm the temple of God. And then it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that if, did you know the Bible actually says this? It says that your body is the temple of God, and if you destroy this temple, you know what the Bible says God's going to do? He's going to destroy you. That's what it says. We can, try to, we can try to argue that that doesn't mean what it says, but it says it, right? So uh, that was actually the verse that helped me to quit smoking because I realized that not only did I want to quit smoking, but God wanted me to quit smoking. And he loved me so much that he said, listen, if you want to destroy yourself, go ahead. But the reality is then I have to destroy you in the end, right? So God won't force you to quit. But if you want to destroy yourself, God will allow it. He's a gentleman. But the reality is, so the temptation comes, and then I bring the text and I say, Father, you, wanna, you want me to be the temple of God. We don't just quote it in our head like a magic trick, and poof, the temptation goes away. But we take that promise, and we claim it, and we say, Father, I want this body to be the temple. I want this to be a place that your spirit can abide. I want you to be inside of me. I want you to change me. And now, as I'm thinking all those things, guess what I'm not thinking about anymore? Smoking. So those new thoughts are going to cause new what? actions and those new actions will become new habits and it will be the new character so take the promises of god i will i would encourage all of you even if you don't have a little thing like this i got my room card in there but if, but I, I take these promises and so i am memorizing promises i'm filling my head so that when temptations come let's think of another one Fadia shared anger a soft answer so you know when the temptation comes for anger that was proverbs chapter 15 verse 1 i don't know if they have it in austrian or in french or in german i mean german austrian is german uh, but all these different things you know uh, whatever whatever you know spanish i'm sure they do in spanish uh, but nevertheless you can buy books that are called bible promise books they at least have them in English, and if you can get an, you understand English, you can get the English one and then, you know, learn it in your language. But uh, basically what it does is it will just have a list of, of different issues like guilt, G. So you look to G and it will say guilt, and you can find verses about guilt, and you can memorize them for the times you're struggling with guilt, or you can find the ones on anger, or you can find the ones go to L and you find lust, or you can find whatever. So let's say you struggle with lust. The Bible says in Psalms 101, uh, verse 3, it says, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. 
I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me, Psalm 101, verse 3. So I'll, I'll set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I won't look at anything evil. So when the temptation comes, God said, Father, you told me that I, I, I would set no wicked thing before mine eyes. Father, I pray that you will help me to think about the things you would have me to think about. That you would have my eye look where it ought to look. That you will strengthen me and enable me. And as you're doing all these things, as you're looking to God, he is giving you the victory. It, the Bible says there is no temptation taken you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you or suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. But it says, but with the temptation, God will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That's 1 Corinthians. I, I would encourage you to memorize that one. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Uh, powerful verses, so many powerful verses that God, we can be, because think about it, how many of you, uh, you don't have to raise your hand, I said I wouldn't ask you, I, I struggle with this, I used to listen to thousands of, of songs from the world, and temptations come into my mind, I even wake up today, after years of not listening to these songs, and sometimes I wake up and the song's in my head, with these old crazy lyrics, bad words, and, I, and they come into my head, and, and so, and it's going over and over, like, like I have some iPod, you know, the, the earbuds in my ears, but they're not. But it's going over and over and over and over. And so God has given us. So that's the devil's billboard. He knows that song is singing about sex. Or he knows that song is singing about drugs. Or he knows that song is singing about fighting. Or whatever it is. And so that's his billboard. It's like going through South Dakota. He knows that if he keeps putting that in front of my face. And I keep thinking about it. Those thoughts are going to work out actions. Those repeated actions become habits. And it becomes my character. So what we need to do is we need to have a billboard. We need to have something that when the temptation comes, we can pull it out of our pockets or we can have it already memorized in our head and we can say, okay, God, you've told me. You've told me in your word. And check this out. This, this is divine. God had me pull this one out just randomly. Numbers 23, verse 19. Numbers 23, verse 19. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent, for he has said and he shall do. Now, God, it says God is not a man that he should lie. You said, why would you memorize that one? Think about this. If God has promised you to be an overcomer, when you're tempted and you feel like, man, I'm just going to fall. But then I say, you know what? God has promised that he can give me the victory. And then I can remember Numbers 23, 19 says, God's not a man that he should lie. He has not lied to me. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is an awesome verse to memorize. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57, it says, But thanks be to God which gives us the victory. What? The Bible says God has given you the victory. God wants to give you the victory. And if, if you accept that, when God comes to you, when you're tempted, when the devil comes to you, when the devil comes to you with a temptation, and he's putting it in front of your face, and you're thinking, man, I'm just struggling with this. I struggled with this 10 years ago. Why am I struggling with this today? And you feel like you're beaten, and you feel like you're down, and then, and then sometimes we go to God like this. We say, God, I just don't think I can do it. Just like you heard, did, how many of you were there when Pastor Finley told that story about the young man who said, oh, Lord, I feel like I'm going to go back to smoking. Oh, Lord, I really want a cigarette. Did you hear him tell that story? You heard it. And, and what did he say? He said, brother, don't pray. Brother, don't pray that prayer. He says, stop praying. Why? Was that man believing that God gave him the victory, yes or no? No, but God has promised in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57, 
thanks be to God which gives us the victory. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The Bible promises that God has given you the victory, and if we trust him, we come to him and we say, Father, it is true, I feel like sinning, but Father, I know you have a better plan for me. I know that you have made a way for escape. I know that you have given me the victory, and I don't trust my own feelings. I trust you, Heavenly Father, because you have all power. And Father, thank you for giving me the victory and thank you that I can go forward. Amen. And we go forward. We're trusting in him, not in ourselves, because I don't have the strength. You don't have the strength to overcome. You know, I meet people who say, oh, you know, religion's a crutch for people. You know, for people who are weak. The reality is every human being, the atheist, the skeptic, all of us, we have some temptations that we can't overcome. Sure, maybe he's not addicted to alcohol, he's not addicted to drugs, but he has his own temptations that he can't overcome. All of us have, we have certain things that maybe in our own steam we can kind of fight our way through, but there's always something that you have that you can't overcome. And God says, I will give you the victory. God promises that. Now, I want to go on now. Everybody please, just for a moment, would you please stand? We need to stand for a moment. You can stretch if you want. You don't have to if that's embarrassing, but you can if you want. But um, now I want you to think about this for a moment. Think with me just for a moment. I'm going to share with you something, and this is not new age at all. Uh, This is actually from a book called Mind, Character, and Personality by a little old lady named Ellen White. Now, you might have heard of her. She's not around anymore. She died in 1915, but she wrote some phenomenal books. The two best books on psychology on the planet our mind, character, and personality. It's, it's two sections, section one and section two. Two books, phenomenal. In those books, she talks about several things. She talks about all kinds of things. She talks about depression. She might talk about anger and guilt and all these different things. But when she's talking about depression, uh, have you ever felt, I'm not talking about like the actual continual depression. That's, that's separate from what I'm talking about. But have you ever been going through the day and then all of a sudden you just start feeling really bad? Like, you don't even know why. I mean, sure, sometimes you know. Like, somebody said something angry to you, and you're, you're angry with them. But I'm talking about those times where maybe you're sitting there at work, or sitting, I don't know, or in school, or whatever, and all of a sudden, you just feel really bad, maybe depressed. Like, and you think, I don't even know why I feel this way. I don't even have a clue. And what she points out simply is that sometimes, I'm not saying always, but sometimes, it's because she says we're not adequately breathing. We're not breathing right. What? And because I read that from her, I found out that that was actually true in my own life. There are times where I just feel really down, and I don't know why. And I've discovered that it's from breathing. She talks about how to breathe accurately. Now, what's happened is the New Agers have come and made up strange ways of New Age. We're avoiding New Age. We want nothing to do with that. But just learning how to breathe accurately, the way God designed us to breathe, will actually help us to feel better. And it will actually calm us. Um, When you are tempted... You don't think about it, but when somebody maybe says something mean to you, you don't notice it, but your heart rate begins to increase. So you have this, doom, 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 doom. and then someone starts being mean to you, and it's like, doom, 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 doom. and you don't notice it, like, wow, my heart's really beating, but that's what actually begins to happen. And what also happens is your blood pressure, right, you know when they check your blood pressure, your blood pressure also increases, and the third thing you, that you don't notice is that your... Um, What's the third? Yeah, your, your breathing, the rate of your breathing actually begins to be shallower. So you go from nice, nice deep breathing, you know, you're sitting all calm to, you don't notice it, but you're starting to go. 
Now, that's when you're really angry. You start really doing that, you know. But, but you understand, even when you're not super angry, you're actually doing that to a lesser capacity. But you're actually, your body by nature begins to do these things, so you become angry. Or these same things happen when you're tempted. Young man, you know, something pops up on the computer screen, he becomes tempted with pornography. Same thing, the heart rate begins to increase, blood pressure begins to increase, and your breathing rate begins to become more rapid. Now, we can actually choose to bring the body back into just a, a, a typical form of breathing. This is not new age. New age is different. It's, it's this false meditating, meditating that is not of God. God's meditation is about meditating upon his word, contemplating, thinking about what it means. How does it apply to my life? New age meditation is just shutting down the mind. Think about like belly button, belly button, belly button. And if you do that, they've actually done tests. If you, medit- if you pray to God, you will find peace in your difficulty. If you meditate, the Eastern meditation, the New Age meditation, you will also have a sense of peace. But what they have discovered is that those who pray to God as to a friend, they have a peace during that time of prayer, but the peace continues. And they discovered that the Eastern form of meditation that is not of God, the emptying the mind and not thinking, that those people become stressed again and maybe even stressed more than they were before. So God's form, God's form of meditation is dwelling upon his word, praying, talking to him. So now I'm going to show you very quickly how to breathe accurately. We're not talking new age. We're totally avoiding that. What we're talking about is like we read in mind, character, and personality. Anybody ever looked at a baby? Uh, how does a baby, actually, no, I'm not going to tell you. Okay, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Take a deep breath. All right, one, two, three, take a deep breath. All right. Now many times when I ask people to do they do something like this. Now, they're taking a deep breath and doing their best, right? But what they've done many times, especially maybe it's not as bad in Europe because we're all slender and in good shape in Europe, but not in America. Everybody's big, you know, almost. Actually, the majority of people are overweight in America. Literally, the majority. It's like 60% of people are overweight. Uh, It's not as bad here, obviously. But nevertheless, you got some people too. But what happens is, in America, maybe here, uh, as you start to get older, you start to get a gut, a belly that's bigger than usual right? And you don't want that. You know, we don't typically want that. So what we do is we suck it in. We suck it in and then we start breathing like this, right? And so what that's doing is we are actually, you feel like because your chest's going up and down, you're getting enough air, but you're actually shallow breathing. Because when you look at a baby, how does a baby breathe? You watch their little tummy go up and down. You ever notice that? Watch a little baby when it's lying down and the belly is going like this. The baby, we are born breathing accurately. Now, maybe you have learned to breathe inaccurately so it doesn't look like you have a gut, but maybe, maybe you already breathe accurately. If you breathe accurately, praise the Lord. But now, some of you probably did this. And that's not correct. So we're going to try to find what's called the diaphragm. The diaphragm. And we're going to try to feel what that feels like so we can breathe like a baby. We're just trying to breathe like normal. We're not doing any weird thing. Now, sit down for a moment. I'm going to sit down with you, and we're going to find our diaphragm. We're just learning to breathe the way God designed us to breathe. Now, you see my legs are spread apart just a little bit. I think the chairs are far enough that you won't hit your head in the chair in front of you. Uh, But basically what you can do is you put your arms between your legs, and you just lean over like this and take a deep breath. (sighs) Try that once. Some of you will be too embarrassed thinking somebody's looking, but they're all bent down too. They can't see you, so... You'll be all right. 
Now, do, does anybody feel in the, what feels like the upper part of your stomach, you feel like it's pushing on there? Does anybody feel that when you bend over? Okay, good. Yeah, I got at least a few people responding yes. Now, that is your diaphragm. That's where the babies breathe. And they're breathing. They're not, babies are not new agers, right? They have nothing to do with the new age. They just breathe the way God designed them to breathe. So we want to learn. Now, everybody stand up again, please. So we want to right now learn how to breathe accurately. So remember how that felt when you bent over and you felt that in your upper stomach? Now try to take a deep breath by doing this. Um, in, we're gonna, now, just to, we want to slow down our breathing because that helps us become more calm. Uh, when we're breathing in, just for practice sake, breathe like you're breathing through a straw. Like that, okay? Ready? One, two, three. Right? Okay, now, now we're going to do the same thing, but when we breathe out, we're going to try to breathe out more slowly. And so the way we're going to do it is we're going to shut our teeth like this. And then we're going to stick our tongue up behind the teeth and go like this. Okay? So let's do the breathe in through the straw and the breathe out slowly, and then I'll explain why we do it. Ready? One, two, three. Okay, you can let it out, but... Okay, back in. Feel it in the diaphragm. Okay, back in. One more time in. All right. Does anybody feel more calm? Nobody. It didn't work. All right. Well, typically, literally. What happens is, and maybe at least one person, does anybody feel lightheaded? You feel lightheaded. Some people feel lightheaded. Basically, what happens sometimes is we actually maybe let off too much carbon dioxide, and we can actually get you know, lightheaded from that. But let, let, let me explain it really quickly. What happens is, okay, let's say you're tempted, you're angry, whatever, and your, your heart is beginning, your heart rate, you can sit down. Everybody can sit down. Um, imagine with me for a moment, your heart rate is increasing, your blood pressure is increasing, and now your, your breathing rate is also rapidly moving. You're going, <sighs> you don't notice it, but it is. So in that situation, you're, you're, you're sitting down for a test, and maybe I'm the only one, but some, some people get stressed when they sit down for a test. Maybe some people don't. But you may sit down and you're like, oh, I can't remember anything. I can't remember anything. Like you just, you become terrified. What you don't notice, your heart rate is going up. Your blood pressure goes up. Your breathing rate is becoming rapid. Well, what happens is you're, you're not thinking well. You're getting frustrated. And you can actually choose to calm down by saying a little prayer, Lord, help me. And choosing to breathe slowly to your diaphragm. And it will actually help you calm down. Or in, in a stressful situation where you're tempted. Like what if somebody comes to you and they, somebody at work or at school and, and somebody says something that's really mean to you. You can simply look at them and start going like this. <laughs> right? Obviously that is not going to fix the problem. 
Now, you say, Chad, why do you make those ridiculous noises when you are breathing? You're not going to typically do that. All, the only reason we're doing that is to teach you to just slow down. Slow down the breathing, and it helps calm you down. That's just a way to learn. So it has nothing strange about it. You're just learning to breathe like a what? Like a baby, just the way God designed you to breathe. So that's breathing, deep breathing. We're not, nothing new age. Don't, don't meditate on your belly button or whatever, but just say a prayer, claim a promise, and, and learn to breathe accurately. Now, uh, I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but I'm asking you the question and think in your head, do you have something God is calling you to give up right now? Maybe you're struggling with a temptation. Maybe you're struggling with a bad habit. Maybe somebody here is struggling with a, uh, an actual addiction. Maybe you struggle with cigarettes or tobacco or whatever. Whatever you need to give up, God is calling you to let go of it right now. If you are struggling with an actual addiction to a substance like a drugs or alcohol or whatever, I would encourage you to get rid of it. I would actually encourage, well, it depends. Um, you could give it to us and we'll throw it away. Because I know we've had people come and they go throw their cigarettes in the trash can in the back and then an hour later they're like, man, I gotta go have a smoke. And so they go look for them in the trash can. So I, it might be easier if you give them to us and we will hide them some, we'll throw them away somewhere where you don't know so you can't find them. It makes it a little easier, right? Uh, but you don't have to do that. I'm not saying you have to, but we have had people do things like that. So, I mean, it's up to you. But the point is get rid of it. Whatever you're trying to get rid of it so it's not an option. But if it's something that you just know you struggle with, uh, go to the Lord and say, this is the time I want, I want to overcome. In our seminar, we never use the word failure. We don't use the word failure. You know, uh, how many of you have heard of old Thomas Edison? You've heard of Thomas Edison, the great inventor. Invented all kinds of things. But speaking, they say speaking of Thomas Edison, that he said, I know 999 ways not to make a light bulb. 999 ways not to make a light bulb. You would say the guy was really a pretty big failure, right? He, he made all kinds of mistakes trying to in, invent the light bulb. Now, was he a failure, yes or no? No. Because, listen, same thing with overcoming. I tried to overcome smoking multiple times, but it's that one time that when God actually gave me the victory, that only mattered. But you can learn from your temptations. You can learn from your, when you stumbled and you can grow. And so continue to press forward. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16, for a just man falls how many times? Seven times and rises up again, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. The difference between the righteous and the wicked is not that the righteous never fall during their lifetime. The righteous are always holy, but the difference between the righteous and the wicked is that the righteous and the wicked, they both fall, but the righteous always chooses to what? Get back up again. But the wicked just falls down and he says, just skip it. I'm not even going to try anymore. I struggle with that. I'm just going to live this way. I'm just going to go on the rest of my life. The wicked stays down. The righteous get, gets back up. God is calling you to get back up. Get back up again. Even if you've fallen a, a thousand times, get back up again today. This is the day to go to the Savior and say, Jesus, I need your help. I can't do this on my own. God wants to give you the victory. How many of you know this verse? Obviously, it's in English, but the Bible says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do what? All things through Christ which strengthens me. Say it with me now. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. So how many things can we overcome through Jesus Christ according to this verse? All things. Are there certain temptations that are just too great to overcome? Is homosexuality too great to overcome? Yes or no? 
According to this verse, Paul tells us we can do all things through Jesus Christ. We saw Paul said to the church in Corinth that he said adulterers, he said homosexuals, he said thieves and covetousness and, and, and alcoholics. He said all those people, they were in the church and they overcame through Jesus Christ. Do you follow? So it doesn't matter what temptation, we can overcome through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I've noticed from talking to people that there are two ways to look at overcoming. When you hear about overcoming, we're not talking about salvation by works because we've already discussed the fact that there's no amount of good things you can do to make up for the sins you've done. All we can do is come to Jesus Christ for salvation. This is not salvation by works. This is, this is righteousness by faith, trusting in God's victory. But the reality is there are two ways of looking at overcoming. Some people hear that God says that to those who overcome, will I give them a crown of life? And they think, what? I can't overcome. So one person looks at it with absolute fear. Another person looks at it and they're excited. They say, what? God is calling me to overcome? Man, if he's calling me to overcome, he must have something incredible in store, right? Right? God said to the disciples, to the apostles, Jesus said to them what? He says, go into every nation and share the message about me. But what? How are we going to go into every nation? There's 12 of us. Well, one's dead. There's only 11 of us. How are we going to do this? And listen, they could either say that's impossible, or they could say, if God is telling us to do it, he must have something incredible in store. Like, I'm going to go into Iceland, and, and I don't know Icelandic, but God is going to what? He's going to give me Icelandic. Well, I did live in Iceland for a while, and I didn't learn Icelandic. I tried, but I failed miserably. But the point being, the point being, if God calls you to do something, praise the Lord, we had many Icelandic people who could share in the Icelandic language, and most everybody spoke English anyway. But the point being, if you're in a situation where somebody needs the gospel, and, and the, the only option is your language, he can give you the gift of tongues. If something is needful and it is from God, he will give the victory. Amen? And so if God is calling you to find victory, he will give the victory. There's two ways of looking. There's looking with fear and there's looking with hope because you know that God will give the victory. And this is another thing I've noticed that when, when you look at, have you ever been in church? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But it's, it's quite common sometimes to hear someone say, oh, I, I used to struggle with drugs and I was sleeping with prostitutes. We'll see some old sailor in the United States. I was doing drugs and I was drinking and I was sleeping with prostitutes and I came to Jesus and I just, he just took all of that away and I never did it again. And then some of you sit in church and you think, praise the Lord. But why doesn't God do that for me? I'm struggling with my anger problem. Or I'm struggling with pornography. I'm struggling with this or I'm struggling with that or whatever. And we're thinking, why doesn't, if, maybe I just don't have enough faith, we think, right? Now, what that guy who shared that testimony about the drugs and the prostitutes and so forth, what he doesn't tell you is that there are other temptations in his life that are more deep-seated than those issues that he has struggled with maybe for years. But God can even take those temptations and help you to overcome. But I want you to think about this. Imagine if every time you're tempted, you just said, God, take it away, and boom, it just went away, and you never had to really think about it again. Well, that would, sounds great. But God actually knows that these temptations that are deeper seated inside of you, that you can actually draw closer to God through those temptations, not through the evil, but through the temptations because you realize, I have to cling to God or I will fall. 
I have to cling to the Savior. This is too strong for me. I can't handle it. Jesus, I need your help. I am pleading with you. Father, I know that you have all power and you will give, you've promised thanks be to God which gives us the victory. Father, and so we can actually through these temptations draw closer to God than had we never had the temptations. So it's not necessarily you don't have enough faith but you need to cling longer in faith. You need to not let go when the temptations arise. And some of the other things we're going to share within the overcoming seminar are lifestyle habits and changes that can help you to overcome. Because remember, what are we wanting to strengthen in this seminar? We want to strengthen the frontal lobe. We want to strengthen the mind. Because the frontal lobe is the seat of, what were those three things? The seat of spirituality, morality, and what was the third? The will. Spirituality, morality, and the will. Remember, young people uh, throughout the world, but specifically in the Western world, are destroying their body through many different means, and they're destroying their frontal lobe. They can't make decisions. They're not spiritual anymore. They're, they're not intelligent like young people used to be, and the reality is they're destroying the frontal lobe, and we want to learn how can we be victorious, how can we strengthen the frontal lobe. So that's what we're going to look at, um, and we're going to look at seven ways to strengthen the frontal lobe and the will, seven ways, a list of seven different things we can do, and also one of the most important things we're going to look at is how to forgive, how to truly forgive people and move on in life. Many people don't realize it, but they're struggling with forgiveness with people, and it's, it's keeping them back from further spiritual experience with the Lord. So these are some of the things we're going to look at as we continue, but we're going to close now with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your son Jesus who gave everything. He gave everything, his own life. And as he was going to the tomb, as he was, I'm sorry, as he was going to the cross, he, we're told he couldn't see through the portals of the tomb. <clears throat> Meaning, Jesus could not see that he would be resurrected after this. Sure, he knew by faith that that's what, that's what the scripture foretold, but he couldn't see it in the darkness and in the trial that he was living through. He couldn't see through the portals of the tomb. And yet even with this terrible guilt of our sins being laid upon him and the sense that he would not be able to receive eternal life after this, he was still willing to go forward to his death that we may receive eternal life. And we thank you, Father, that you say that you have given us the victory. That all the righteousness that Jesus had in this world for us, he has given. He has said, I will give it to you. And that by faith we can go forward realizing that Jesus has given all. And he will give us the victory as he has promised. So, Father, we are thank you for that. We pray that we would become victorious, not to be saved, but because you have saved us. And in response to this, we want to be victorious through our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. This message was recorded through a partnership between GYC and GYC Europe at the 2012 conference in Linz, Austria. GYC is supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church seeks to inspire young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.